Welcome to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording this episode on Friday, June 24th, and it will begin airing on Sunday, June 26, 2022. My name is Reese Robinson, and I'm on air today with my co-hosts, Emily Scott and Jasmine Smith. How's it going today? Well, if uh, we're recording on Friday the 24th, meaning like this morning, the Supreme Court just officially overturned uh, Roe v. Wade. So as far as like how things are going in a larger sense, you know, as we say almost every week, not great. Yeah. Um, But I'm hanging in there personally. I'm trying to remember that hope is a verb. It's an action word. So trying to keep those thoughts in mind about how we move forward from this and not go back regardless of what we see happening. So that's where I am today. I totally feel you on that as well. It was horrible to see that as breaking news this morning. Um, And I like what you said about hope. I did also read a story this morning about how California and New York are sanctuary uh, states and you know, they will uh, continue to fight for women's rights. So, I mean, that's that's the hope I'm rolling with right now. Um, it's been a challenging week, but I'm feeling good over here. Feeling feeling better. And Emily, we hope you are well over there in Spain. All right. So on the docket for today's episode, our local news segment will be about the NYC mayor considering lifeguard policy changes. For national news, we are going to talk about failed autopsies, a risk of bias and death examinations. Our world news story will be about the horrific earthquake that killed a thousand people in Afghanistan and the urgent need for humanitarian help requested by the Taliban. And for good news, um, just going along with what we talked about earlier, Governor Holchel signs New York's new abortion bills into law amid the Supreme Court ruling to overturn Roe v. Wade. So we're going to go ahead and kick off today's episode with our local news segment. Jasmine, you're up. Okay, so this is a story that um, it, it's interesting because I'm not someone who swims. Are you a swimmer, Reese? I am. I am a little mermaid. It's okay. me, me wanting to move to California. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's that's good. I mean, it's a good life skill to have. It's a good um, exercise. But I am, you know, someone who is afraid of water. But there were some things that came out in the local news related to um, swim programs and lifeguard shortages in the city that grabbed my attention. Um, this article is in, written in the city.nyc. The title is Adams Floats Possibility of Changing Lifeguard Policies to Boost Staffing Numbers. It was written by Katie Honan on June the 21st. Uh, Mayor Eric Adams on Tuesday said he wants to give lifeguards better equipment and training and will try to salvage canceled pool programs amidst a lifeguard shortage that has hit New York City. Adams is vowed to look at policy changes, as well as other safety suggestions from lifeguards, comes after two people died Friday evening at Queens Rockaway Beach, minutes after the shore officially closed for the day, and on a stretch that was already off limits to swimmers. An anticipated lifeguard shortage forced the Parks Department to cancel learn to swim, water aerobics, and other classes at the city's 53 public 
pools for the second year in a row. And the mayor wants to see if lifeguards who pass less stringent qualifications can teach them, he said in an unrelated press conference Tuesday. We're trying to see if we can rethink some of these rules to address the shortage because you know it breaks all our hearts to see a young person die merely because they want to use the beach, he said. Our goal is to find a safe way to ensure that we can open as many beaches as possible and have as many lifeguards as possible. Adams also said he is looking into the feasibility of providing better equipment to the city's lifeguards, including two-way radios and all-terrain vehicles to use during emergencies. Currently, lifeguards do not have access to ATVs, although they're used by other Parks Department employees at beaches, including enforcement patrol staff and beach cleaners. It's part of larger concerns about lifeguard management highlighted by the city on Friday. I like the idea of allowing them to have ATVs or some way to get in to get to a stretch of the beach, the mayor said. And I love the idea of coordination with FDNY. A spokesperson for the fire department did not immediately respond to a request for comment on possible coordination. On Friday, the city also highlighted the longstanding issues within Parks Lifeguard Division which patrols 11 miles of beaches and 53 pools across the five boroughs. As of Tuesday, there were just 529 certified lifeguards available to work, with a final goal of between 1,400 and 1,500, according to Parks Department spokesperson Crystal Howard. That small fraction of necessary staff is reflective of a steady years-long decline in the number of lifeguards, as well as an acute shortage brought on by the pandemic and larger labor issues. Would-be candidates can still get certified up until July 4th, as long as they pass rigorous swimming tests that veteran lifeguards say are controlled mostly by the union heads at DC 37's Local 461 for lifeguards and Local 508, their supervisors. As of last week, 923 people had taken the qualifying swim test, but just 240 passed, according to the Parks Department. While city beaches have been open since Memorial Day weekend, activities at public pools will get started on June 28th. Because of the shortage, the pool season is set to begin without several specialized programs, including early bird and night owl swim laps, water aerobics, day camps, and swim lessons. Veteran lifeguards say a nationwide shortage is just one of many problems within the Parks Department's lifeguard division, which was the subject of a New York Magazine story in June 2020 that prompted a Department of Investigation probe. Lifeguards who spoke to the city also alleged that experienced members have been pushed out as retaliation for participating in a union trial prompted by DOI's investigation and that the test is not transparent. If the mayor is really sincere about putting lifeguards on ATVs to help make rescues, I would be very happy to hear that, said Janet Fash, a lifeguard since 79, although she hasn't taken the test yet this year. I hope the mayor and the new parks commissioner are able to do something. 
Peter Stein, head of Lifeguard Supervisors Local 508, and Alma Diamond of NYC Lifeguards Local 461 did not respond to messages seeking comment. The Parks Department deferred to the mayor's comments. The lifeguard shortage is compounded by confusion around closed beaches as a result of a sand replenishment and jetty project that shuts down various stretches of Rockaway Beach to swimmers at different times this summer. As of Tuesday, swimming was prohibited from Beach 93rd to Beach 116th Street, home to some of the most popular areas. The overwhelming majority of New York City residents and visitors cannot distinguish the difference between a beach that's open for swimming and just open for sunbathing, as per the Parks Department's plan, said one former lifeguard who spent years as a beach supervisor. Continuing to give people access to just sand implies that they have access to the water, and tragedies like this will continue to happen. So yeah, it was a bit of a lengthy article, but I thought that it um, highlighted several issues that are sort of converging on like what's going on with the beach. Um, and this, when we're airing this episode, it's going to be like up to 90 degrees. So it's a, it's a problem. Like when people don't have full safe access to water, to swimming pools, to swim lessons, it's scary, like, what could happen? You know, two people dead already, and we're early in the season. Yeah, absolutely. And that stretch of beach that you were talking about, this close, I used to visit that all the time. Um, that is one of the most popular regions because they have the boardwalk and a couple of restaurants over there. Um, but, yeah, I mean, this is a really unfortunate thing, especially for families in the city that don't have AC, that are looking to occupy their children um, and spend time together. Because it's just a lot of times that's like the only outlet, you know, with the way everything is so expensive now, the beach is kind of a fun thing to do that's not that expensive and everybody can enjoy it, you know. Um, and so it's, it's always really sad because there's not as many opportunities for young people to learn how to swim. You know, it's so different. When I was growing up, soon as summer hit, soon as the first day to pull open, which is why I learned to swim so young. They had those early morning lessons for people. I was going to ask how you learned how to swim because you know that it is that I'm thinking just the way that you're thinking. Yes. Go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, that's exactly where I was coming from because that's how I learned. You know, it was just one of those things. You bought your token. However, that you know we had tokens in Cincinnati, Um, and you would have your token for the whole summer. I think it would cost maybe twenty five dollars or something like that. And you'd have to put your things in a locker. So you'd buy a lock. Other than that, you can come to the pool every day. And my mom worked, you know, all summer. So me and my cousin stayed with my grandma and going to the pool is like the first thing we do. Get up, go to the pool, you know, and I'm just an early morning person. So I went to those early swims. I went for those lessons. I was maybe, I want to say I was like nine or 10 when I first learned um, about fourth grade, maybe. And you know, I stuck with it. I was familiar with the lifeguards. It was more of a community service experience, I think, for the lifeguards and the center, the community center that was over there to teach kids in the hood how to swim. And not not just in the hood, but that's where I was. Um, But that's how I learned. And it's a lifelong skill that I, to this day, have benefited from um, in many ways, you know, helping others learn, being able to travel. And now I love the water. 
So it's really uh, a good thing that there is this is coming up and it's being examined. I can imagine how a lot of people are, especially after the pandemic, not we're not thinking about this as a career field or something to do, but definitely necessary to kind of rework how this is done. Yeah, it's like I'm someone who um, did not grow up swimming like I in my pub I was you know in an inner city school it was a good school as far as the quality of the education but like the location of it was like in the inner city in a rough part of town and it's one of those things like and you know we're both you and I are both black and like we're both aware of like the history of like segregated access to like swimming facilities and like safe places where you could swim. And a lot of those things persist even now in who has access to swim lessons at an early age and where it's just kind of taken for granted that your school has a pool where that's part of your education to swim. I didn't have a pool like in my high school or my middle school, but there were people, um, in the area like if you went to a place that had more money and all of that where it was just a part of gym was you learning how to swim so i'm not sure you know i didn't look into exactly like where these shortages are hurting the most but i wouldn't be surprised if it's like areas where you know you already have a lack of investment and probably a lack of other options for what to do to occupy your time and, you know, those are the same places where it's now less safe for you to go out on the beach and try to get some relief. Have you ever seen that documentary, United Skates? No, I haven't. So if you have a chance, it should still be on Hulu, but it's um, it's about the history and the current geography of like black skating rinks around the country and how they were like a safe haven, but how, you know, a lot of times black people would get pushed out, edged out. And I bring that up because one of the uh, families that they follow in the documentary, you know, she has young kids and like going to the skating rink is like an outlet for them. It's something that would keep them out of trouble, like for lack of a better term, you know, and the fact that that was taken away from them meant that they were more vulnerable to get involved and stuff that she was trying to keep them away from. And I do see things like these public programs, like swim lessons, like being able to just do something that's relatively free with your friends safely in really hot weather. You know, we know there's a lot of violence that happens in the summer, especially in like urban areas. Like there's a lot of pent up frustration and things like that. And so the last thing you need is for the few outlets you have to like dry up or they're less safe or you can't really go or you can go but you can't get wet like there's so many like implications to not having this resource and i hope that they're able to come to a solution because i don't know i'm a little concerned that like they're making the swim test less rigorous seems like one of the things that they're trying to do like i think they should you know respect the union efforts people you know that's a life and death job they deserve to have protections and good pay and that would attract more people yeah to train stay on the job they need and they the same um newspaper i think they were reporting on people who are already trained like first responders that usually would 
also do shifts as lifeguards were not mm. being allowed to do that, Why which not? is questionable. Wow. Well, that's disheartening, especially because, you know, each one teach one, you know, they could be a part of the training efforts and recruitment efforts as well. So, yeah, I mean, it seems like you have like a union issue going on that's messing up with things. People feeling like they're being retaliated against, you know, just an overall lack of investment in what we need, like for communities, like you were saying, like it is a community need. So... I don't know. We'll see. Like, I, at least it's something that's on the mayor's radar and he's doing something, but we'll have to see like what the result is as the summer goes on. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for that story. Super timely and relevant. Um, just, you know, as a safeguard, just in general, please pay attention to the water warnings. They will tell you when it's high tide, pay attention to the time of day you go to the beach. Those things um, affect the rip wet rip current and also just make sure your child has um, some sort of flotation device on them, you know, not just hanging onto a board, but actually have um, those floaties around their arms, around their waist. These are just small precautions that you can take just in case you're the section of the beach you're in um, is not um, fully uh, stocked with lifeguards or people who understand the safety of the water. Yeah, absolutely. Because I'm one of those people, too, when they mention, like, I wouldn't even think, I would think if the beach is open, that the water is open. And that's obviously that isn't the case. So, yeah, you know, don't risk it. I, you know, I'm scared of water, so I'm not going to risk it. But like, if you're someone who likes to swim, you know, don't be so proud or overconfident that you think you can't get swept up because it can definitely happen, unfortunately, faster than you might think. Yeah, so. and the water changes too, you know, throughout the day, the tide changes based on the position of the sun and the moon. So those are things you have to kind of pay attention to as well. Most of the time they have flags out and stuff, but just be mindful around six o'clock, things get a little crazy. Um as the tide rolls in for the evening. So those are just, you know, small things you learn spending that much time at the water. But hopefully this is a shift. And, you know, by, I guess they said early July, we have a lot more people applying for this program. All righty. We're going to go ahead and hop into our first music break of the day. Um, and this track is called Suicide Doors and it's by Black Odyssey. We'll be right back. Like, oh, so can't you see? By the dawn, just early lights, they drop my name. 
You can follow our social media accounts. We have an Instagram account and we also have a Facebook account. Our Facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. No spaces, no punctuation. Our Instagram account is at objection to the rule. Again, no spaces, no punctuation marks. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now we'll have Emily give us our national news update. Hey, everybody. Emily Scott here. And this is the national story for the week. Uh, This comes from a June 20th New York Times article by Shayla Dewan titled Failed Autopsies, False Arrests, a Risk of Bias in Death Examinations. Disastrous errors by medical examiners have raised questions about whether they are influenced by prejudgments and a close relationship with the police. The article explains, quote, Emberly McLean Bernard, born six weeks premature in rural Mississippi, weighed less than five pounds when doctors sent her home. She did not cry and barely ate, her mother said, and not two days elapsed before she began to gasp for breath. Jocelyn McLean rushed her daughter to the nearest emergency room, but the baby was already turning blue. The medical team went straight to code blue, pumping air into the baby's lungs, trying to force an IV into Emberly's neck and scalp, prodding her with a rectal thermometer, but her vital signs kept failing. After four hours, they gave up. A state medical examiner concluded that the death had not occurred because of a medical problem, but had been a homicide the result of blunt force injuries with signs of strangulation. Ms. McLean, a 29-year-old black mother with two other small children, was charged with capital murder. Ms. McLean was stunned. The emergency room doctor who had tried to save the baby was shocked, but Dr. Joy Carter, a forensic pathologist tapped by the defense to review the case, saw an all-too-familiar pattern. A medical examiner who made a ruling without talking to the doctor or even examining the hospital records. Supervisors who signed off on his decision, I'm sorry, supervisors signed, who signed off on his decision, a criminal justice system that all too often sends black people to prison on evidence that might not have convicted someone else. In court, Ms. McLean and her lawyer recalled, Ms. McLean was called a monster. She spent almost a year in jail before Dr. Carter's autopsy review forced the state medical examiner and prosecutor to acknowledge that the baby's injuries could be explained by the desperate attempts to save her that night. I'm thankful that this woman didn't murder her child, Stephen Jubera, the assistant district attorney in Tallahatchie County, said in an interview after the charges were dismissed. But the flip side of it is, my God, I've had a woman locked up. The nation's death investigation system, a patchwork of medical examiners, freelance experts, and elected coroners who may have no medical training, is responsible for examining suspicious and unexplained deaths. Wrapped in a mantle of scientific authority, its practitioners translate the complexities of disease, decomposition, toxicology, and physics into simple categories like accident, homicide, or death by natural causes, setting in motion the legal system's gravest cases and wielding tremendous influence over juries. 
Yet these experts are far from infallible. As forensic science of all kinds faces scrutiny for, about its reliability with blood spatter patterns, hair matching, and even fingerprints no longer rega- regarded as the irrefutable evidence they once were, the science of death has been roiled over the past year with questions about whether the work of medical examiners is affected by racial bias, preconceived expectations, and the powerful influence of law enforcement. A study published last year by the Journal of Forensic Sciences found evidence of cognitive bias when 133 forensic scientists were presented with identical medical evidence in hypothetical cases involving child deaths. The deaths were more likely to be ruled an accident if the child was white and the caregiver was a grandmother. They were more frequently ruled a homicide when the child was black and being cared for by the mother's boyfriend. The study, whose authors included Dr. Carter, touched on the very essence of the simmering debate over forensic pathology. It showed, its author said, that judgments that ought to be based on science can become clouded by prejudice when medical examiners allow their findings to be affected by information that is not medically relevant. But many leaders in the field insist that medical examiners are obligated to consider the totality of the case before them, including statistics showing that boyfriends are more likely than blood relatives to commit child abuse. The new research was met with an explosive backlash. The National Association of Medical Examiners complained that the study hadn't been poorly designed and improperly conducted. One association member filed an ethics complaint against Dr. Carter and the three other forensic pathologists listed as authors, claiming that the paper would do incalculable damage to our profession. One of the authors suggested retracting the paper simply to end the controversy. I can't even sleep at night because of all the hate and vitriol that I've received, he wrote in an email shared with the New York Times. In frustration, Dr. Carter, who had spent years trying to expand racial representation in the profession, resigned as head of the organization's diversity committee. Quote Dr. Andrew Baker, the chief medical examiner in Minneapolis, who would go on to perform the official autopsy in the Floyd case at George Floyd, Uh, acknowledged in an address to the American Academy of Forensic Sciences in 2015 that egregious failures of the system have led to tragic consequences for innocent defendants. But he attributed the failings to bad apples in the profession, not a failure to establish safeguards against error. Overt failings, such as incompetence, dishonesty, fraud, and corruption, do not constitute cognitive bias, he said. Dan Simon, a professor of law and psychology who served for six years on the federal committee charged with creating better forensic standards, said medical examiners have been uniquely resistant to adopting reforms. They stand out in their recalcitrance, he said, and it's a serious problem. Quote, before getting involved in the case of Emberly's death in Mississippi, Dr. Carter had spent much of her career taking on the issue of racial bias in the forensics profession. She attended medical school at Howard University, which was then the only historically black school with a pathology residency, and in 1992 became the first black woman to lead a medical examiner's office in Washington. She realized that there was virtually no pipeline to train and recruit people of color in her profession, even though more than half of homicide victims in the country are black. Later on, she heard absurd claims from fellow medical examiners, including that black people were impervious to pain and that bruises could not be detected on dark skin. She came to believe that a lack of cross-cultural training was causing mistakes with large consequences. Some of those ramifications became apparent during her forensic pathology residency in the 1980s when she was the only black pathologist in the office of the medical examiner in Miami. Poor black women were turning up dead in dismal settings. 
cheap hotels, abandoned buildings, open fields. Though the women were found in similar poses, the deputy medical examiner believed that their deaths had been triggered by a combination of cocaine use and voluntary sex. Nearly all were classified as drug-induced accidents. Dr. Carter pushed back. The victim she examined had a severe crack habit, but Dr. Carter declined to call the death an accident. She was right. After a public outcry, the autopsies were reviewed and injuries were found that had been overlooked or dismissed. The deaths were all reclassified as homicides. A man with prior rape convictions became the prime suspect in 32 killings over nearly a decade. He died before he could be brought to trial. Over the years, the most commonly cited source of bias in forensic pathology has been law enforcement influence, in part because in some places, police detectives are routinely present during autopsies. And I'm going to leave that story there. Um, There is a lot of big news on a national scale these days, but I... I, I like to take the opportunity to talk about important stories that aren't getting as much press coverage sometimes. Um, cause again, you know, these have huge consequences for so many people, but it's, it's, a, it's not as overtly, it's not as easy to talk about. Cause it's so much more, it's, it's can be complicated in that way. I think. That was tough. Um, thank you for that story. Nonetheless, definitely something I haven't really thought about ever um, or considered, you know, I guess we all live under the assumption that medical examiners have some type of forensic background, but according to this article, all the people involved um, don't. And it's so sad. The story of this mother who was sent to jail because of the way that the medical team tried to save her child. um, It's bizarre. So I think that this is definitely a topic that needs to be uh, visit it more often. Uh, obviously, reform needs to happen in this system, and we need to take a closer look at the people we have in these positions, because obviously, without proper training or understanding, or even just, you know, uh, reporting on how things is, are being done and being in that reporting being shared with everyone who is making decisions in these cases, um, this, this specific topic um will continue to be in bias. And so many historically uh, black and brown people have been placed into prison or just have bad outcomes with law enforcement because of somebody else's negligence and also because of racist tactics that have yet to be acknowledged or reformed. Yeah, I was, um, it's disturbing how strong the pushback was against the study that was showing the bias like how people react so violently when you explain to them because like we all have some kind of bias like no one is fully free from it but if you're not even willing to acknowledge it then you're not going to do the work that it takes to like overcome that so it's like they're almost fighting for their right to continue to be operating from this place of You know, like you said, seeing black and brown people more likely to be some kind of deviant or criminal that needs to be punished or being more likely to believe that, you know, a white person, it was just some kind of a mistake. And, you know, especially with what's happening right now with uh, reproductive uh, rights being gutted in this country, that's a huge part of why we see the criminalization we see now. It's like if you miscarry, 
or you happen to have like a really bad period, it's like, it's going to be up to the staff in that hospital to make some kind of a judgment call, like if they believe you or not. And that often does not end well or work in your favor if you're black, if you're poor, you know, if you're indigenous and so on. So yeah, I'm glad that um, you brought this story up, Emily, because it's it's not something I had really, I didn't realize the extent of the problem and it's it's shocking, it's terrible. And very timely in, in the wake of everything that's happening as well. Unfortunately, I just feel like we're gonna see a lot more um, criminalization of women for reasons beyond our control. Um, yeah. So we're going to go ahead and take our next music break, give this topic some air. Um, this next track is called Daybreak and it's by Catalyst, Adrian Young and Ali Shaheed Muhammad. We'll be right back.
Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And for our world news story, um, we will be talking about this horrible earthquake that happened um, this past week in Afghanistan. The article comes from CNN.com. The title is, What Do We Do When Another Disaster Hits? Afghans Face Crisis on All Fronts After Quake Kills 1,000. The authors of the article are Tara John, Akanshka Sharma, Joe Shelley, and F. San Papalasi. Aid groups scrambled on Thursday to reach victims of a powerful earthquake that rocked eastern Afghanistan, killing more than a thousand people in the area blighted by poor infrastructure as the country faces dire economic and hunger crisis. The slow response exasperated by international sanctions and decades of mismanagement, concerns people working in the human humanitarian space, like Obudullah Bahir, lecturer in transitional justice at the American University of Afghanistan. This is a pat, very patchwork band-aid solution for a problem that we need to start thinking about mid to long term. What do we do when another disaster hits? He tells CNN by phone. The magnitude 5.9 quake struck during the early hours on Wednesday near the city of Khost by Pakistan border, and the death toll is expected to rise as many of the homes in the area were flimsily made out of wood, mud, and other materials vulnerable to damage. Humanitarian agencies are converging on the area, but its remote location has complicated rescue efforts. The United Nations Refugee Agency has successfully dispatched humanitarian aid and assistance to families in Paquita and Coast provinces to cover the needs of about 4,000 people, a spokesperson for UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres said during the Thursday press briefing. Spokesperson Stephanie Dujarek said the priority needs include emergency shelter, non-food items, food assistance, health and water and sanitation, as well as hygiene support. He aided that the World Food Program has confirmed stocks of food will be able to serve at least 14,000 in the hardest hit Patkita province. At least 18 trucks were making their way to the earthquake affected area carrying emergency supplies, including high energy biscuits and mobile storage units. The World Food Program statement released on Thursday. UNICEF Afghanistan tweeted that they were able to distribute hygiene kits, winter kits, emergency family kitchen kits, tents, blankets, warm clothes, and tarpaulin to affected individuals in the area. The quake coincided with heavy monsoon rain and wind between June 20th and 22nd, which has hampered search efforts and helicopter travel. As medics and emergency staff from around the country attempt to access the site, Help is expected to be limited as a number of organizations pulled out of the aid-dependent country when the Taliban took power in August last year. Those that remain are stretched thin. On Wednesday, the World Health Organization said it had mobilized all of the resources from around the country, with teams on the ground providing medicine and emergency support. But as one WHO official put it, 
The resources are overstretched here, just not enough for the region. The international community's hesitancy to deal with the Taliban and the group's very messy bureaucracy where it becomes difficult to gain information is from one source. From one source has led to a communication gap in the rescue efforts, Bahir, who is also the founder of the A group Save Afghans from Hunger, said. At the core of everything is how the politics has translated into a gap of communication, not just between countries and the Taliban, but the international aid organizations and the Taliban. Bahir gives an example of how he has been acting as a conduit of information with the World Food Program and other aid organizations, informing them that Afghanistan's Ministry of Defense were offering to airlift aid from humanitarian organizations to badly hit areas. In the meantime, some people spent the night sleeping in makeshift outdoor shelters as rescuers scoured for survivors by flashlight. The United Nations says 2,000 homes were thought to have been destroyed. Pictures from the badly hit Paquita province, where most of the deaths have been reported, show homes reduced to dust and rubble. There will be months and potentially years of building back. The needs are so much more massive than just food. It could be shelter, for example, to be able to facilitate the movement of the food as well as the customs clearance, logistics, and other help would be helpful. Officials said aid is reaching the affected areas. The government has so far distributed foods, tents, clothing, and other supplies to the earthquake-hit provinces, according to Afghanistan's Ministry of Defense official Twitter account. Medical and relief teams deployed by the Afghan government are already present in the quake-hit areas and attempting to transport the wounded to medical facilities and health centers by land and air. So I'm going to stop right there um, just because I think that's a brief synopsis of this um, issue. However, there's a there's just a little bit more um, later on in the article that I think is important considering the takeover by the Taliban and how the sanctions that were placed on them are part of the reason they're having such problems. So I'm just going to read just a little bit more so we can talk about that. Although the economic crisis in Afghanistan has loomed for years, the result of conflict and drought, it plunged to new deaths after the Taliban takeover, which prompted the United States and its allies to freeze about $7 billion of the country's foreign reserves and cut off international funding. The U.S. no longer has presence in Afghanistan following the hasty withdrawal of its troops and collapse of the previous U.S.-backed Afghan government. Like nearly all other nations, it does not have official relations with the Taliban government. Sanctions have crippled the Afghan economy and sent many of its 20 million people into severe hunger crisis. Millions of Afghans are out of work, government employees haven't been paid, and the price of food has soared. Humanitarian aid is excluded from sanctions, but there are impediments, according to the draft remarks by Martin Griffiths, head of the UN Office of Coordination and Humanitarian Affairs, head of the UN Security Council in this situation in Afghanistan. This includes major need and funding Taliban authorities seeking to play a role in the selection of beneficiaries and channeling assistance to people on their own priority lists and the formal banking systems continue to be blocking transfers. This means around 80% of organizations are facing delays in transferring funds with two thirds reporting that their international banks continue to deny transfers. Over 60% of organizations cite lack of available cash in the country as programmatic impediment. So that's it. I know it was kind of a long read. However, um, you know, it's a, it's a multi-layered 
situation. And there's so many things to consider here. Yeah, like I... I don't want to say I like it, but I think it's good that they point out um, what the effect that some of these blanket sanctions do or like how it can complicate things like when something like this happens. Like it's just, you know, it's like I really, it's, it's just heartbreaking what happens when, you know, you have the leaders of a country and the people that, you know, are making these big decisions for the entirety of the country, like it's not synonymous with everyone living there or like just because um, the individuals that are in charge are doing things that you might not agree with or you think are morally reprehensible. Um, there's still so many just everyday people trying to go about their business that suffer because of not only their own government's actions, but like the way the international community decides to like pull support or, you know, freezing their assets. Like I, that's highly questionable, you know, like and cutting off, you know, access to reliable banking. Like what, what exactly is that supposed to do? You know, like why isn't it focused on specific people or like specific um, groups as opposed to it being everyone because that's obviously like it's going to you know throw the whole country into even more despair on top of a disaster and ultimately lead to a more drastic refugee situation in the region surrounding this country um, in my grad school program we had a specific course on humanitarian assistance and how natural disasters and complex emergencies, that's what they called them when they were political, um, how they intertwine and how they don't. And one of the things that we studied the most was that all of the NGOs and MPOs um, really have to make their own connection with people on the ground. They can't right. um, depend on the government uh, to assist in their efforts to assist their people. So, you know, uh, there was a trip that some of us went on to um, a country that was definitely not a safe situation to find out what this looks like. If you were going to be a, you know, humanitarian officer of some kind for any organization. And it is very challenging. Things change every day. You know, even just access, access to people. This uh, The region that was hit is deep in the country. And then with the monsoon rains that followed, even the air access was um, prohibited and inhibited. Um, and so it just really delays the process where people can be being saved. And this is, you know, people wonder why there's so many consulates all over the place and how that whole system works. Well, this is a pure example of, of having access in other countries. We all have to depend on each other. You know, God forbid something like this happens here um, because we are the United States, AKA nation states. Uh, we have more access to each other. But the reality is in regions like this, their neighboring states may not be able to assist them in the way that's needed. And, you know, traveling across the country to deliver things is really, really unfortunate. And it's tough, you know, so prayers up for everyone on the ground, everybody trying to help out in this crisis. Uh, we have to be um, interconnected 
And no matter how you frame it, we are human, the human race is codependent on one another. Right. And like, I like that you mentioned how, you know, if something like this were to happen here, like it's, you know, the U.S. is a geographically super big country. So sometimes, you know, when there is a big disaster, it might feel almost like it's in another country. But especially with climate change, like there's going to be more and more of these things. So it could very well be you one day that would need this assistance. So it's important not to be callous, not to not pay attention because of who is the victim of this happening right now, because, you know, we're all, we're all in this together, whether we want to be or not. So definitely prayers up for them to get the help that they need. And if we find anything on ways to support, like we'll definitely share that with you all. Awesome. Emily, please give us the good news. So again, lots of bad fucking news this week on a national scale. Um, but this story I think is an important alternative angle uh, or not even alternative, it's just a different angle on everything happening. Uh, this information comes from a June 24th Gotham- Gothamist article by Caroline Lewis titled, A Supreme Court Overturns Roe v. Wade, NY and NJ, New York and New Jersey Prepare Safe Havens for Abortion. The article explains, quote, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled Friday there is no constitutional right to an abortion, reversing decades of precedent and creating significant health and safety risks for pregnant people in 26 states certain or likely to ban or severely restrict abortion access. But in New York, abortions are still legal up to 24 weeks of pregnancy and after that point in special circumstances. State officials have already taken steps to further solidify abortion access in recent weeks in anticipation of the Supreme Court decision, which was telegraphed in a leaked draft opinion in early May. Today, the Supreme Court ruled back the rights, rolled back the rights of millions of Americans disregarding their interests and, more importantly, their lives. New York Governor Kathy Hochul tweeted Friday. Abortion rights are similarly protected in neighboring New Jersey, and both states may soon see an influx of people traveling from parts of the country where abortion is illegal or severely limited. It's a trend that has already begun as more states have restricted abortion access in recent years. The Supreme Court decision was issued in the case Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. In a majority opinion, the court overruled the long-standing precedent set in 1973 by Roe v. Wade, which first established the right to an abortion on a national scale. Uh, Quote, abortion travel is expected to increase with the fall of Roe v. Wade, along with attempts by anti-abortion states to limit it. Already, the share of New York abortions provided to out-of-state residents has increased as other states have passed more restrictive laws. In 2019, 8.9% of abortions provided in New York were for non-residents, nearly triple the share provided to out-of-towners in 2012, according to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. In New Jersey, 5.9% of abortions provided in 2019 were for people from other states. Quote, as New York's legislative session wrapped up in early June, lawmakers pushed through a handful of measures to protect those providing, assisting with, and seeking an abortion in New York, which were signed by Kathy Holchel on June 13th. New York now has laws to protect clinicians from facing malpractice claims or professional misconduct charges for providing reproductive health services, and to help those who might be targeted by anti-abortion activists to keep their addresses confidential. 
New York lawmakers also passed legislation to shield abortion patients coming from other states and the health care providers that serve them from out-of-state legal action. That legislation states that the governor cannot recognize extradition requests related to abortions that took place in New York, and courts cannot issue subpoenas for most cases involving an abortion. It also prohibits law enforcement from arresting anyone for performing or assisting with an abortion and from cooperating with such investigations. After another law makes it impossible to sue someone for attempting to interfere with rights that are protected in New York. I'm sorry, makes it possible to sue someone for attempting to interfere with rights that are protected in New York. After the budget was finalized in April, Hochul also sidestepped the legislature to announce that the state was setting aside $35 million to assist abortion providers. Of that, $25 million taken from the State Department of Health's emergency fund, I'm sorry, the State Department of Health's emergency fund will go to an abortion provider support fund that will help providers scale up and cover unreimbursed care. Another $10 million sourced from the State Division of Criminal Justice Services will go towards providing more security at reproductive health clinics. The New York Department of Health sent out a request for applications for the funding in early June to clinics primarily serving low-income patients that are funded under the state's Comprehensive Family Planning and Reproductive Health Services Program. These providers will get $10 million of the funds being distributed by the health department, and the remaining $15 million will be made available to other abortion providers. New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy has sought to get state lawmakers to support similar measures to protect abortion providers from legal action and establish a dedicated abortion fund, but has so far been unsuccessful. Still, both he and Hochul have sought to reassure residents that their abortion rights aren't going anywhere and that out-of-towners seeking abortions are welcome. I want everyone to know that an abortion remains safe, accessible, and legal in New York, Hochul continued in a statement Friday. Our state will always be a safe harbor for those seeking access to abortion care. We're never going to be a state that looks like Texas or Georgia or other states, Oklahoma, that are going in the direction of taking rights away from people, Murphy said in a recent interview with NPR. We are going to expand rights. So, yeah, while the the Supreme Court decision is fucking horrible, it's uh, been a little bit, I don't know, a little bit numb almost, you know, I was thought coming and it was still, still not, still devastating. Um, it's good to know that it's not, I mean, it's not blanket across the country, how it's going to, I mean, it's, it's, it's going to affect a lot of people in very, in many different ways, but it's good to know that there are some people in power that are working to try and counter, counteract all the people trying to take away access to abortion. Thank you so much for that story. That was awesome. Definitely timely considering everything that's happening today. Um, You know, praise God for sanctuary cities and sanctuary states because the way this world is going, it ain't safe nowhere, you know? It's really not. And I, I am happy that this happened and that these actions were taken notably before this um, decision came down, like you have to be proactive and not always reactive. And unfortunately, and it's something I've been guilty of myself. So I include myself in this criticism. Like you, it's important to understand that whatever rights and safeties and protections we have, like we have to be proactive about maintaining them and supporting one another. You can't ever just think that you know, there's going to be some magic thing that will keep it in place forever. Because as we can see, 
that's not the case. So please, please, please like get in touch with what's happening on the ground locally. Get in where you fit in and do whatever you can in your power to support people that need your help today. Like don't wait until the next disaster. Start building the world that you want to see now or else you won't ever see it. All right. That's it for this week's Objection to the Rule. Thank you so much for listening. You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org or on the Radio Free Brooklyn app or on Spotify. Uh, Please keep listening for more independent Brooklyn media. We are going to play you out with our final track of the day. This is the summer track, I guess, that just was released this week. (laughs) I'm feeling it. Uh, Is it it what I think it is? It is what you think it is. I couldn't help myself. So (laughs) this is Beyonce would break my soul. We'll see you next week. Bye. They won't break our soul. (laughs) (laughs) They won't. It was so appropriate. Uh, Yeah, anyway, we'll see y'all next week. Bye. Bye. If you'd like to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please download our free mobile app for iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. Also, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming Radio Free Brooklyn events. You can sign up at radiofreebrooklyn.org forward slash newsletter.